Lupercarnum was the haute couture of its time, whether for secular or religious garments, coverings, purses, seal bags, or even horse trappers. These items were made to be part of an experience. They were made to be seen, to stand out, and to display the object or wearer as someone or something of status and was central to an art form displaying the rich material culture of the medieval elite. Hello and welcome to the Stitch Safari podcast, a sprightly and upbeat expedition into the alluringly appealing ambrosial world of stitch history, art and embroidery. Each fortnight we'll trek through and discover the utilitarian, the decorative, the quirky and the just plain fun world that is the art of the needle. My name's Cathy Jack Copeland and I'm the Stitch Safari Expedition Leader. I'm an Australian textile artist, teacher, judge, blogger and stitch enthusiast whose work in contemporary machine stitch became my business. It's a sad fact that most surviving examples of this work are religious. Secular examples are rare indeed, mostly preserved because of their association with either people or events of significance, which is why I dedicated an entire episode to the Black Prince's Jupon, while much diminished, still shows the splendour of design and workmanship along with the chivalry of the man, Edward of Woodstock, the Black Prince. Indeed, one has to believe that the professional and embroiderers of London were just as happy working for kings and the nobility as for bishops, as many court records and inventories attest. Refusal to embroider for the king could even place these craftspeople under threat of imprisonment, Supervised by the royal linen armourers and embroiderers, they were able to recruit in the city and suburbs of London and elsewhere broderers, tailors, painters and other workmen of the mystery of broidery. This stupendous aesthetic of Opus Anglicanum is, quite rightly, an art form with powerful content and meaning but it was and will always be a vital component of the exquisite elegance of the medieval decorative arts. Yet this stunning form of English embroidery also impacted and was impacted upon by many other art forms from the 13th and 14th centuries, mirroring architecture, sculpture, ivories, illuminations, board paintings, wall paintings, stained glass windows, along with the embroidery of Opus Anglicanum, mixing them homogeneously into the medieval decorative arts. Thin, expressive faces and long, haunting figures are nearly always depicted in architectural designs, echoing the arcades of Gothic churches with vacant space often filled with garden scenes of flowers or angels. Claire Brown, co-curator of the 2017 exhibition 
English Medieval Embroidery Opus Anglicanum held at the V&A and textile specialist remarked that the exquisite attention to detail in these embroidered works makes them not just impressive examples of craftsmanship and luxury materials, but offer vivid glimpses of life both in reality and in the medieval imagination. From the grim torture of martyred saints to a mother's tender swaddling of a newborn baby, scenes are depicted with a meticulous precision that the sophisticated embroidery techniques made possible. These embroideries tell a vivid story of textiles in the Middle Ages and the important role they played as part of medieval art history, easily and often overlooked by specialists in other art forms. Yet these embroidery designs were stylistically advanced and may well have acted as a tool for the spread of the English style and compositional structure across Europe. The unique images and iconography used in these surviving English embroideries adds to our understanding of both figurative and decorative art from this period. M. A. Michael, writing on the artistic context of Opus Anglicanum for the 2017 V&A exhibition, English em- uh, Medieval Embroidery, Opus Anglicanum, suggests a number of design comparisons with other artistic endeavours of the same era, such as a scrolling, stiff-leaf design found from fragments on a pair of stockings from the tomb of Walter de Cantaloupe, Bishop of Worcester, 1236-1266, which is similar to designs in the then-recently-installed stained glass of the Corona Chapel at Canterbury Cathedral, 1215-1220, with figures similar to those seen in contemporary manuscripts. He also writes this, Even at this early date, it's clear, therefore, that the design of such embroideries was carried out by artists who were in touch with the latest trends. Later documents confirm that painters acted as the designers of embroideries, drawing out the areas ready for stitching. And there's evidence to suggest that model books, similar to those used by artists working in other media, were also used. Embroidery of architectural arcades and structures are reflected in panel paintings. Fragments of a frontal dating from 1300 display the iconography of Christ as saviour of the world, holding a globe while making the blessing similar to iconography first used in England on the Westminster Retable, a frame or shelf circa 1269 to 1272, suggesting the embroidery designer was familiar with work at the court of Westminster. This interchangeability of stylistic design suggests a wide range of reference between illuminated manuscripts, wall paintings, architectural stonework, metalwork and wooden screenwork, not only from England but also from European and even Asian sources. 
Careful consideration was also given to the orientation of the design on the wearable garment, ensuring figures were upright. Rondelles, quatrefoils and radiating architectural structures and canopies were often employed as design devices and framing tools, along with repeat patterns often seen in panel paintings, inspired perhaps by the embroidered repeat patterns of Opus Anglicanum. Dr Christine Lanell, in her PhD thesis in 1995, writes about the effect religious design and embroidery had. It was only with embroidery that the opportunity existed for this singular role to be revealed visually in artistic terms. It functioned in all its parts to serve a single idea reflective of the garment's purpose. In the liturgy of the medieval mass, these luxury robes acted as beacons of light, drawing the faithful into the celebration, investing the wearer with the signs of God's promise to mankind, thereby affirming throughout the sacred space of the church the certainty of the ultimate reunion with the hosts of heaven, whose eternal worship was reflected on earth in the drama of the Mass. Confirmation that these garments were designed for the purpose of high drama and storytelling, becoming powerful implements to be used before a congregation of the mostly illiterate. Dr Linnell goes further to suggest that iconography such as that used on these richly decorated textile robes only works when the object is seen as a whole in its intended context, providing a setting for both the visual and oral sequences of the festivals of the English church. The robes announced the drama of the celebration and rituals, with the designs on the robes serving as a marker in the stages of the service. Dr Linnell writes, By their golden sheen, the festal copes drew all those who saw them into their orbit and reflected the fulfilment of the promise of the Eucharist on all those on whom the light of the jeweled splendour fell. Accompanied by sound and sparkle, these great copes must have confirmed the truth of the promise of the revelation. So the purpose of the iconography was to celebrate the interaction between the church on earth and its spiritual counterpart in heaven, with the embroidery acting as the written words of a text. Now, English work was in high demand, utilising the new techniques of underside couching, surface couching, split stitch and applique, enabling high visibility of the precious gold, silver and silken threads used. The designs became embroidered paintings, originally worked on linen, but later used imported velvets and silks. And these embroiderers were astute and shrewd. As the demand for embroidery grew, so too did their ability to simplify yet still retain the elements of glimmering glory, which was, after all, what people were paying for.
they adopted techniques to more rapidly produce embroidery. For instance, they streamlined the solid goldwork backgrounds into various lozenge-shaped designs, an arrangement that lasted until the 16th century. Simplified background treatments and the increasing use of separately worked applied motives aided in the speedy production. Applique was used throughout the Middle Ages as a rapid means of producing both large and small items, often personalised with heraldic designs. The merchant tailor's pall, circa 1490-1512, depicts scenes from the life of its patron saint, John the Baptist, using applied embroidery on a crimson velvet ground. Highly accomplished and still retaining much of that original colour, highlighting its subtlety and expressive stitching. The Fishmonger's Paul, circa 1512 to 1538, uses rich Italian cloth of gold with embroidered linen sides depicting the life of St Peter along with the Fishmonger's Company's armorials. The background is worked in surface-couched gold thread and coloured silks with separately applied embroidered figures. These pawls, made to order for the wealthy livery companies of the City of London, aid in our understanding of the standards achieved in ecclesiastical embroidery in England during the late 15th and 16th century. Underside couching was abandoned by, by the 1430s in favour of surface couching, varying the density of stitch used in the simple geometric patterns, catching the light at different angles. Closely stitched areas were contrasted with areas of long floats, a method probably imported from France. Yet new influences, such as that of Ornoué or shaded gold, were quickly employed alongside other much-loved techniques. This special technique of Ornoué, where many threads of passing gold are laid down parallel and touching, creates elaborate and gleaming images by varying the spacing and colour of the couching stitch. Thought to have originated in France or Burgundian Netherlands, Ornua's standard of excellence was reached by the second quarter of the 15th century, depicted by the vestments commissioned by Philip the Good, Duke of Burgundy, 1419-1467, for ceremonies attending the Order of the Golden Fleece, a chivalric order he created in 1430. Robert de Varenus embroidered riding mantles of green wool for Charles VI of France and the Duke de Touraine in 1386, each with a long stem of broom worked in embroidery of gold sewn with green silk and other colours and the broom cods made of ornoué. This technique was well used in France, evidenced by a royal account dated 1399 describing the decorations on the sleeves of two long gowns as consisting of two stems like hawthorn branches, one of which is entirely formed of pale or unshaded gold, trellised with cypress gold with gold leaves, and the other stem worked in shaded gold or Nui, 
bearing hawthorn branches and leaves made in shaded gold, stitched in silk in four colours. Italian and Flemish embroiderers developed the technique even further, taking it to a higher level of eye-catching and impressive sophistication. It was thought that two embroiderers from the French royal court of Richard II and his wife Isabella, daughter of Charles VI, brought the technique of Ornoué with them to the English court, with an early example of this work to be seen in the Butler Bowden chasuble, where flowering branches and Stafford knots are formed using silver gilt threads, which are surface couched in pairs using silk shaded from dark green to yellow. The Stafford knot, most commonly known as the Staffordshire knot, is a distinctive three-looped knot that is the traditional symbol of the English county of Staffordshire and of its country town, Stafford. What is noticeable in the development of these techniques by medieval embroiderers is their use of shading to emulate form. The head of King Solomon on a panel from the Tree of Jesse, 1320 to 1335, using silver gilt thread and coloured silks on linen, shows the typical facial swirls of split stitch and tonal hair and curls. But move forward to the Virgin enthroned on the hood of the cope from the Burgundian vestments of the Golden Fleece, 1425 to 1440, using Ornoué worked in silver gilt thread and surface couched with coloured silks, and the elevation in skilled shading to depict form is easily discernible, not only in Mary's blue robes, but also the curtains and pillars of her seating. We also see the evolution of silk stitching manifesting itself in the second half of the 14th century with the use of three-dimensional effects. Embroidered angels from an orphrig circa 1350 to 1380 using silver gilt and silver thread and coloured silks for underside couching shows details of embroidery worked over cords. Gone are the spirals of split-stitched cheeks and nose. However, what we begin to see is the insertion of parchment to pad out and lift the stitching, creating dimensionality. Design is a crucial ingredient to any successful embroidery and Opus Anglicanum is no different. M. A. Michael, in his research paper, The Artistic Context of Opus Anglicanum, suggests that Opus Anglicanum forms an essential ingredient in that flowering of English medieval art known as the decorated style in the period circa 1270 to 1350. Research into the stylistic and iconographic use of design for Opus Anglicanum is fascinating. But being able to see how medieval embroiderers interpreted these designs through their use of stitch would be an unbelievably fruitful and rewarding endeavour for any aspiring embroiderer wanting to inform their own design work using historical references.
Such opulence and innovation in embroidery design and technique leaves me almost speechless. These so-called dark ages are filled with glimmering, sparkling light, portraying status and wealth, but especially offering a dialogue with their Heavenly Father to many who could neither read nor write. As part of my research, I've been dipping into a magnificent book published to accompany the exhibition at the V&A in 2017, entitled English Medieval Embroidery, Opus Anglicanum. This sumptuously illustrated book draws on new research along with beautifully detailed photography and essays by numerous leading experts. And it would become a welcome acquisition to any embroidery resource library. So thank you for listening and for your time. But I think there's still more Opus Anglicanum to explore in my next episode. Don't forget, you can follow Stitch Safari on Facebook or Instagram, where I post interesting tidbits to support these podcasts. Till my next episode, bye for now. Mm-hmm.